Welcome to episode 32 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the New Zealand podcast that covers issues in philosophy, theology, politics, social issues, and so forth. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Back in episode 26, I believe it was, I started a series called In Search of the Soul, a series on the mind-body problem. In part one, I introduced traditional Platonic or Cartesian dualism, covering some of the major arguments for that view, and I briefly explained my reasons for thinking that, well, those arguments leave something to be desired. In part two, I began to move along the spectrum from dualism towards physicalism. So I introduced emergentism, a view that places itself somewhere between the two. The example I used of a philosopher who holds that view was William Hasker. I also introduced the argument from free will an argument sometimes used against physicalism. I suggested that the argument of free will, or the argument from mental causation, is actually far more complex than some people might suppose. I also argue that the argument from free will is as much of a problem for the emergentist, like William Hasker, as it is for any other kind of physicalism. Then, continuing to move along the spectrum, right into the world of physicalism or materialism, I introduced a cluster of views that do not invoke or claim to invoke the existence of a non-material substance in the makeup of a human being. Some of these are enthusiastically advanced by Christian philosophers and other people, such as the constitution view of persons and non-reductive physicalism, views that I find myself quite comfortable with, and some which are certainly not uh, enthusiastically advanced by Christian philosophers, things like epiphenomenalism. Today we come to a subject that I enjoy, not really sure why, but I just find it interesting and enjoyable, namely the argument against physicalism from the afterlife, that, you know, not arguments that are offered from beyond the grave. Uh, what I mean is certain philosophers and theologians argue that Christians have a special reason to reject physicalism, because if physicalism is true, then life after death is impossible, and Christians believe in life after death. One philosopher who, as far as I can tell, has made this argument more often than any other is, once again, William Hasker. I find this a bit strange, because William Hasker is not really a substance dualist in any traditional sense, and his own argument from the afterlife, I think, undermines his own emergentist view. I'll I'll come to that a bit later. Today, I'm going to ask whether or not a real substance dualist, namely a Cartesian dualist, could use this argument with any certainty against physicalism, or if physicalists might have offered plausible answers, or if any answers are needed. Before I get started, I want you to think back to the second episode in this series, episode 27, if my counting is right, where I introduced emergentism or emergent dualism, and I made a passing reference to an argument that some people use against dualism, namely the problem of interaction. How on earth, people ask, could an immaterial mind interact with and influence a physical body? 
Now, William Hasker replied, and I want to draw some attention to his reply because it's important for today's episode. He said, and I quote, It may be true that there is some difficulty in imagining just how this influence operates, but what of that? There is no reason to think that reality is limited by what we can easily imagine, end quote. Now, that principle, which I fully endorse, I think it's a great one, that principle will become important in this episode, so bear it in mind. Now, William Hasker agrees that the limits of our ability to imagine how something can happen must not determine whether or not we think something is possible. Now, having said that, let's get started. Bill Hasker argues, basically, that if physicalism were true, the resurrection of the dead would be impossible. More specifically, he claims that if physicalism is correct, then any person raised to life in the future would be a brand new person and not someone who has lived and died before. He's not alone in saying this. He's not the only one who argues that way. John Cooper has said that dualistic accounts of human nature, quote, have absolutely no difficulty, end quote, in explaining the continuity of our identity between death and resurrection. Absolutely none at all. It's just easy. Given that people are immaterial, immortal souls, according to dualism anyway, they don't die in the first place, so there's no problem of continuity. The physical organism may cease to function, but the person does not. He or she just undergoes relocation before being incarnated, or rather reincarnated, that is, incarnated for a second time, in a new body at the resurrection. Just at the outset, I think it's an interesting theological observation This marks a very important difference in emphasis on the resurrection between physicalism and dualism. For physicalists, because there is no immaterial soul to go marching on when our heart stops beating, the only possible future life that we could have is a physical one. For the Christian physicalist then, the resurrection of the dead takes on a whole new level of importance. We need it or we have absolutely no future. If there's no resurrection then, as some people have said, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If you're a Christian as well as a dualist, however, you can, although you don't have to, but you can believe that regardless of what happens in the future, when your body dies, you will continue to live, and even if you never get a body again, you can still have eternal life, somehow, whether physical or not. Just not physical if the body doesn't rise. Christians do, of course, believe in the resurrection of the dead. Christian dualists do believe that. And for the Christian who is also a dualist, the resurrection is like the icing on the cake. Living forever in and of itself, going to heaven is great, but going to heaven and then later being resurrected by being reincarnated into a new body makes it even better. Even if you were not a religious person, but you were a dualist, however, you might think of life after death as somehow natural. You are a soul and not a body, so there is no reason to think that you die when your body dies. For the physicalist, however, things are different. As Trenton Trenton Merricks puts it, quote, All hope of an afterlife resides only in the promises of God, for the physicalist, physicalist believes that the death of her body is the death of her. For a Christian who is a physicalist rather than a dualist, The resurrection isn't and could never be the icing on the cake. It is the cake. Physicalism, however, getting back on track, so the anti-physicalist argument goes, has no way of accounting for the claim that the person who will rise in the resurrection is the same person who died a thousand or a million years beforehand 
since in physicalism, the person is the body or something that is dependent on the body, and a new body would mean a new person. That's how the argument goes. A physicalist view of human nature thus has a fatal flaw. That's the phrase that John Cooper uses because it offers no possibility of the resurrection of people who have previously died. Bill Hasker, although he rejects the traditional dualism of Cooper, remember he advocates emergentism, picks up on the same argument. He says that, and I quote, It is nonsensical to assert that God creates out of nothing a person that has already lived, died, and completely passed out of existence. End quote. So it's not just that it will turn out to be false or it's not true or it's unbiblical or or what have you. It is absolutely absurd, logically incoherent, he says, to even entertain such a thought. I want to be clear at the outset that he is not only offering an argument against the truth of the combination of physicalism and resurrection, his claim is that the view is logically contradictory and inconceivable. Hasker sums up a common physicalist conception of human nature, not held by all, but, you know, held by some, saying, and I quote, John Smith is identical with a certain living human body, end quote. So that's the, the view he picks out to discuss. But if this is so, then, he says, a lack of continuity between this body and the resurrection body will exist. He claims that regardless of whether one is a dualist or a physicalist, you can't have physical continuity here. He says, and, and I quote at some length, he says, what is it that lives both now and then? Within this physicalist view, that is, what is it? Is it literally the same body which shall rise again on the last day? Few have thought so. Indeed, one can easily imagine circumstances which make this impossible. It may often have happened that each and every particle of matter making up a person's body later on become part of the bodies of other persons. And it might also happen that a body should be caught in a nuclear holocaust and pulverized into its constituent elementary particles so that literally no single atom of the original body remains, end quote. That, that such a lack of spatio-temporal continuity would exist, he says, is a completely adequate reason to reject the combination of physicalism and the resurrection of the dead, thus ruling out physicalism as an option for Christians. I have a few comments on this quick argument. Firstly, it's a mistake, a historical mistake, to think that few have thought that the body that will rise again is the same body that previously died. The the fact is, virtually all Christian writers on the resurrection of the dead have thought so. Uh, William Lane Craig, I'll use a modern example, in his defense of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, notes the obvious parallel in in the mind of the Apostle Paul between Christ's resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and our resurrection. He says, and I quote, Paul taught that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we will also be raised from the dead at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 24. Thus, contrary to popular opinion, the Christian hope is not that our souls will live forever, although, by the way, as far as I know, William Lane Craig is a dualist. Uh, Continuing the quote now but rather that our bodies will be raised up to eternal life. But in order for that to be possible, the present mortal body must be transformed. According to Paul, it is the present body or the remains of it that will be transformed and raised as a glorious new body. Thus, after the resurrection, all the graves and cemeteries would be empty. 
I emphasize that intentionally, I'm not just being slow. Since what will happen to us is simply a repetition of what happened to Jesus, Paul undoubtedly believed that Jesus' tomb was empty. End quote. Now, I've got no doubt that Bill Hasker believes that the tomb of Jesus was empty after the resurrection. But why would that even be necessary if, as Bill Hasker says, the body that rises is not the same one that died? Christian theologians have always, always from the very beginning thought that the two bodies are the same body in the cases of both Jesus and in our own case. Even if the body gains new qualities at the resurrection, which Christians have taught that it will. Speaking of the relationship between those two bodies, Trenton Merricks makes the accurate historical observation that, quote, the overwhelming majority of theologians and philosophers in the history of the church have endorsed the claim of numerical identity, end quote. In other words, they, they claim that the two bodies were in fact one and the same body. The general consensus of, of Christian orthodoxy throughout history has been pretty much the same view as that expressed by the Westminster Confession of Faith. So I'll quote from that. It says, and I quote, At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different quali- qualities, which shall be united to their souls forever. Now, when it says, shall be united to their souls forever, yes, they reveal that they are dualists, and I disagree with that dualism. But the point is, even Christian dualists in history have always believed that the body that will rise is the same body that once died. So what Hasker is proposing is unorthodox. And that might not be a problem in itself, if not for the fact that he implied that it was orthodox in order to use it as a weapon against physicalism, saying that few have disagreed with him. Just about everyone disagrees with him. If he thinks that the problem for physicalism arises because the resurrection body will be a new body and not the same body as the old one, then ironically it's theological orthodoxy that comes to the rescue of the physicalist. Now to his credit, uh, William Hasker has since conceded that Christian orthodoxy is against the position that he advocates, that a different body will rise in the resurrection than the one that died. I assume, therefore, I hope, therefore, that he won't be using that argument again. Now, if people are bodies, that's the dualist, sorry, that's the physicalist view that he chose to attack. If human beings are identical with certain bodies, and if Christian orthodoxy, as we've seen it does, if Christian orthodoxy maintains that the same body that lives now will one day rise again after it has died, then Christian orthodoxy rejects this argument against physicalism. Because if a physicalist is an orthodox Christian as far as the resurrection goes, then his orthodox beliefs commit him to the view that he, that is the same body, that is the same person, will rise again. Secondly, there's nothing impressive about the fact that we could uh, easily imagine, those, those are the words he used, easily imagine the scenarios that Hasker suggests, you know, with the nuclear holocaust and so forth. The fact that they are imaginable doesn't suggest that either of them will occur. It's possible that God, possible, that's all I'm saying, possible that God will prevent some of the particles from anybody uh, from becoming part of another person's body. Maybe God will preserve some of them. It's also possible that no human body will ever be pulverized in a nuclear holocaust to the point where none of the original atoms exist. We can easily imagine a situation where, oh, I don't know, where Jesus didn't rise from the dead or where an emergent mind fails to survive death or that there will be no resurrection of the dead. But, you know, just as reality is not limited by what we can easily imagine, neither does it 
wait a minute. Yeah, I did say that right. Neither do, does it necessarily conform to what we can imagine. But still, even though his theology of the resurrection was at fault, I think Hasker has something here. It seems at least a bit strange that the body and brain could die, be buried, and be you know, break down into organic matter, you know, just dead cells. And yet the same person could be resurrected again in the future. There's something to be said for the argument. What would make the resurrected person the same person who died? What is it? Even if there were some of the same cells, or even a lot of them, maybe even all of them, in the new person, does, does that really offer much comfort? Isn't it a bit like being told that you're going to be thrown into a giant blender and blend it up? All your particles will be there, but you know, obviously you'll be dead. But don't worry, because you'll be put back together again, and the thing that gets put back together will be brought to life by, I don't know, Dr. Frankenstein or something. Oh, I don't know if I'd feel terribly comforted by those words. Surely it would be a new person made out of your reconstituted remains, and you can't look forward to the experience of being that person. So there is a sensible argument here. But before moving on further, I have to say, it's not an argument that an emergentist like Hasker, who believes in the resurrection, can afford to use. Here's why. Emergent dualism also has a problem explaining how a person, that is, an emergent mind, according to that view, can survive the death of the body. I'll try to very briefly explain why. Hasker's concept of the mind uh, has the mind as something parasitic on the body, or at least parasitic on the brain, being produced by the brain and dependent on the brain for its ongoing existence, and everything that affects the brain affects the mind as a result. One would naturally think, therefore, that emergent dualism serves as a reason for denying that the mind survives the death of the body. This is all the more to be expected, given that Bill Hasker critiqued physicalism just because its concept of a mind that depends on a physical brain seems to rule out the idea of the mind surviving the death of the brain. Why doesn't that work against his view as well? And, and to his credit, he sees this, kind of. He confesses that the chances of surviving bodily death given an emergent view don't look very good. He says, and I quote, it should be said at once that the emergent dualism, sorry, that emergent dualism does not lend itself to a doctrine of natural immortality. If anything, the tendency of the view is in the opposite direction. It recognizes the intimate dependence of the mental functioning on brain function. Yep, he did say that. I got it right. And there is no particular reason to expect that the mental functions can be performed when the relevant parts of the brain have ceased to operate. End quote. I think he's being kind of too easy on himself here, a tendency that I think we all might have. Emergentism doesn't merely have a tendency to deny that postmortem survival could happen, nor is it the case that there is merely no particular reason to expect such survival. Emergentism appears to, to entail the denial of such survival. Recall Hasker's clear description of emergentism on the, on, in the previous episode, where he said it is a, no, a couple of episodes ago, where he said that it is a view wherein the mind is generated and sustained on an ongoing basis by the configuration and operation of the brain. Well, that means, that means surely that if, if the mind is dependent on the brain for its ongoing existence, then the destruction of the brain brings about the destruction of the mind. 
and there is no possibility of its survival after bodily death. It looks to me like an open and shut case. Now, there is a response to this. In fact, Hasker has made a response to it, but I think that in spite of his, his clear skill as a philosopher, that response amounts to bad philosophy. It also takes a while to explain and to respond to, uh, so I'm not going to wade through it here. The end result of that explanation is that the reason that I've just given is a perfectly adequate reason to say that emergent dualism doesn't offer any hope that the mind can survive the death of the body. If you want to look at the arguments involved, head on over to the articles section of the website, beretta-online.com, click on articles, it's in philosophy articles, and you'll see the article there where, where it's called Hasker at the Bridge of Death, and it was published in Philosophia Christi back in 2008, where I spelled that argument out. So if you're interested in finding out more about that, go check it out. Okay, so where are we? Well, we're right here. Wherever you go, there you are. We're right here. William Hasker, an emergentist, claims that a physicalist cannot account for how a person could possibly have life after his body has died. I say that this is a case of people throwing stones in glass houses because emergentism itself cannot account for the survival of death. But there is little satisfaction, some satisfaction, but little satisfaction in what is called a two-quirque reply. This type of reply is one that says, oh yeah, well, the same goes for you, because that's what I've just done for Hasker. Maybe the same does go for Hasker as well. That's a you know, relevant argument to make, but it's not a defense of physicalism, obviously. Maybe it just means that physicalists and emergentists both have to give up the hope of eternal life, which is hardly a victory for the physicalist. So, what do Christian physicalists have to say for themselves? Here is where I leave emergentism behind, and I address the argument as it could be offered by a Cartesian dualist. Now, it's actually tempting to continue using a two-quoque reply, this time directed at the Platonic or Cartesian dualist, how does a mind that's not extended in space leave a body that is extended in space, go to heaven, which is not extended in space, or maybe it is, I don't know, you have to ask a dualist, and travel into a new body, which is extended in space. But I'm not going to pursue that. Let's just ask, how the physicalist can respond in his own defense? Basically, the Cartesian dualist's argument is as follows. Now, it might pay to have today's blog post in front of you where I will list these premises because I may refer to them by number a bit later on. Premise 1. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead entails that people will be raised back to life who are the same people who died long ago. In other words, they will have the same identity. Number 2. Premise 2. Sameness of identity, or just Identity requires unbroken metaphysical continuity, that is, the continued, uninterrupted, or non-gappy existence of whatever thing the functioning person is, whether a physical thing or an immaterial mind. Premise three. In physicalism, it is logically impossible for there to be unbroken metaphysical continuity between a physical person who died a hundred or a thousand or a million years ago and a person who will be raised to life in the future. Number four, which is really the conclusion here, therefore, if physicalism is true, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is logically impossible, or stated differently, a physicalist cannot consistently believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's the argument. 
I am a Christian and I am a physicalist, but I still have to say that unlike the previous arguments for dualism that I've looked at, namely the argument from thought, the argument from qualia, the argument from the unity of consciousness, and the argument from free will, all of which I think are bad arguments, this argument from a Christian point of view against physicalism is actually pretty good. Those previous arguments are not, but this one has something going for it. I think there is initially a strong intuitive feeling that if my brain is reduced to compost, then any newly made brain will not be my brain, even if it's an exact copy. The possessor of that new brain, or rather the person composed of that new brain, or however you look at it, might be made in such a way that he or she, depending on how things work out, will remember being me. Brains, after all, could be programmed any way their programmer likes. But can I look forward to being or having that brain? Wouldn't it just be a replacement person? The Christian physicalist needs to deny the conclusion of this argument I've just outlined. And since the argument is valid, that is, all, the conclusion really does follow from its premises, the physicalist has to deny one of the premises. There are three premises. premises sorry, premise one is too important to deny. That the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead entails that people will be raised to life and they will have the same identity as people who previously died. Well, that's just what the resurrection of the dead is. You reject that, you've rejected the resurrection. So the Christian physicalist can't deny premise one. He has to deny either premise two or premise three. Premise two is the claim that in order for two people to have the same identity, there has to be psychological continuity or even just metaphysical, I should say metaphysical continuity between them. Not necessarily psychological. There can't be any gaps. Premise three is the claim that it's logically impossible for there to be continuity if physicalism is true. Now, as a matter of fact, physicalists have actually denied both of these premises. And all the Christian physicalist has to do is give reasons for doubting at least one of them. So I'm going to address these premises in reverse order. Start with premise three. Is it really true that physicalism necessarily makes metaphysical continuity impossible? Logically impossible. It might strike some newcomers to the subject as a bit strange to even question this claim. Of course, you might think, if a person believes that they are a physical being, then they must believe that there is a break in their their continuity when their physical body dies. If a physical being dies today and then rises a thousand years from now, then there must be a thousand year gap in existence. Clearly nothing physical survives, you say, so if you're a physical being, you don't survive. There's a break in your psychological existence and in your physical existence, in fact, in all aspects of your existence. Now some physicalists think this, in fact, most of them do, but not all do. And a physicalist doesn't have to think this. That seems strange. Allow me to explain the strangeness. First, however, there has been one important unsuccessful attempt to argue for metaphysical continuity here. One way that a physicalist might think of metaphysical continuity is to think of resurrection as nothing more than reassembly. So all the bits and pieces continue to exist in some form and if God just takes all the parts that constituted you and then reassembles them, puts them back together, then you've got continuity, right? Well, it would provide continuity. 
but there's something wrong with that. The atoms that make me up now are not the atoms that made me up five years ago. And those atoms are not the atoms that made me up ten years ago. But God, if God, rather, can resurrect me by putting back together the atoms that constituted me, then he could reassemble the set of atoms that made me up five years ago. And also reassemble the atoms that make me up now. And if this reassembly view of resurrection were correct, then both of those resurrected persons would be, would be me. But two different people can't be the same person, can they? Or if they can, can they? I mean, can they maybe, in a matter of speaking? At an early stage of embryonic development, one embryo can divide into two. In fact, if physicalism is true, then provided we had good enough technology, it might be possible to divide my bodily materials up in such a way as to get two people. So maybe I'm potentially two people, but that introduces a whole can of worms in and of itself. I mean, if you did divide me that way, would either of those new people be me? If so, which one? And so so on and so forth. It presents difficulties, to put it mildly. When an embryo divides in two, moreover, there is an immediate causal relationship between the one embryo and the two that result. For that matter, even though all my atoms are now being replaced with new ones, so you wouldn't say that I'm being replaced all the time. Why? Well, because there is a causal relationship between the body that constitutes me now and the body that will constitute me in a year. That's what makes the continuity relevant. If God gathers up the dust that made me up and puts it back together, the worry is that there's no causal relationship between the physical me that died and the new person that God miraculously brings to life. You might share that worry, so you might doubt that this really provides metaphysical continuity for a physicalist view. It's not obvious, however, that there's no causal relationship here. If a necessary condition for me being raised back to life is the fact that I previously lived, so in order to, for God to raise a body from the dead, that body must first have once lived. So that cause or precondition, if you like, must hold. Then maybe there is a causal relationship here after all. Now granted, it won't be a cause exerted by the molecules of my body immediately on death on the molecules that make up the resurrection body. Granted. So that means that the life lived, the life previously lived by this body, or the life taken part in by the parts of that previous body, won't be the only cause. Another worry with the reassembly view is that you could be eaten by a cannibal. Now, how is that an objection? Well, suppose you get eaten by a cannibal one day, and then when the resurrection rolls around, there will be atoms that make up bits of you that both you and the cannibal would have equal claim to, because after the cannibal ate you, they then made up bits of the cannibal. So there are a few concerns raised for that view. However, I want you to set that aside because that's not the major answer that I'm, I'm getting to. Another possibility, and this is the main one here, is suggested by Peter van Inwagen and others. Yes, it's strange. The view that I'm about to explain is strange. I need to prepare you for that. But all I'm doing here is suggesting physicalist solutions that are logically possible. And van Inwagen's view his solution that he offers is logically possible. You ready? Here it comes. And I quote, It is part of the Christian faith that all men who share in the sin of Adam must die. 
What does it mean to say that I must die? Just this, that one day I shall be composed entirely of non-living matter, that is, I shall be a corpse. It is not part of the Christian faith that I must at any time be totally annihilated or disintegrate. One might note that Christ, whose story is supposed to provide the archetype for the story of each man's resurrection, became a corpse, but did not even in his human nature cease to exist. It is, of course, true that men apparently cease to exist, those who are cremated, for example, but it contradicts nothing in the creeds to suppose that this is not what really happens, and that God preserves our corpses contrary to all appearance. Perhaps, at the moment of each man's death, God removes his corpse, sorry, I shouldn't laugh, God removes his corpse and replaces it with a simulacrum, which means basically a replica or something that looks like it, which is what is burned or rots. Or perhaps God is not quite so wholesale as this. He removes for safekeeping only the core person, the brain and central nervous system or even some special part of it. These are details. I take it that this story shows that the resurrection is a feat an almighty being could accomplish. I think that this is the only way such a being could accomplish it. Perhaps I'm wrong, but that's of little importance. What is important is that God can accomplish it this way or some other. Philosopher Kevin Corcoran suggests something almost the same, where God doesn't steal the body quite like this and then replace it, but rather the body undergoes a kind of fission and divides in two. Each part divides in two, so you've kind of got two bodies One of the products of that vision is the corpse that gets buried. The other is a body that God removes from the scene. The worry that I have with that latter view is that it seems quite coherent that, you know, the the duplicate could still be alive. But I guess Kevin Corcoran would say that's not the same person. I I don't know. Let's just stick with Peter Van Inwagen. As long as there is a logically possible denial of premise three, The claim that physicalism logically negates the possibility of metaphysical continuity, that's the premise three, as long as there is a plausible denial of that, or at least a logically possible denial of that, then the physicalist is quite entitled to not be troubled by this argument. If there's one logically possible solution, then who knows, maybe there are others, but there's at least one. Sure, the physicalist might say, continuity of identity does require a non-gappy existence, but the physicalist has a logically possible way of maintaining belief in a non-gappy existence of the body. So the objection doesn't work. Now, all by itself, logically speaking, this is enough to diffuse the argument about physicalism being incompatible with resurrection. Game over. But still, there's another way that the physicalist might reply by denying premise two. So let's look at that now. Does identity really require non-gappy existence? That is, it doesn't really require metaphysical continuity. So it's logically possible for physicalism to be true and for there to be a non-gappy existence from this life to the next, allowing for death and resurrection in the meantime. But even allowing for miracles like this, you still might find it a bit weird. I find it a bit weird. I mean, it might be true, I suppose, but I find it a bit weird. It means that appearances are deceptive. It means that physical beings, or just beings in general, it means that human beings appear to die. They give every sign that the death of a person has taken place, when really it hasn't. 
Now, it's not unique to, to that view. Dualism has the same illusion as well. People appear to die when they don't. But we're looking at this just from, from a physicalist perspective now. The objection was not a fatal logical objection, but the solution that we've just looked at from Peter van, van Inwagen, I think, seems inelegant. That previous response does protect physicalists from the logical objection to an afterlife, but it also leaves the physicalist wanting a more satisfactory model. And what's more, most Christians who are physicalists don't believe that they will survive their death. They don't believe that God will steal the body. They actually believe that there is a metaphysical gap or break between death and resurrection, that we as people go to sleep in the dust of the earth, as it were, and then we awaken from the dust of the earth in the resurrection of the dead. That's what most, most physicalists actually believe. So let's have a look at how Christian physicalists like this, namely sort of garden variety physicalists, can deal with the argument. Can they deny the second premise, that unbroken metaphysical continuity is necessary for personal identity? Now at first blush, you might think that this just seems obvious, that for one person in the year 2010 to be the same person that existed in the year 1970, then they must continually exist for the 40 years in between. However, it may be that for many, or most maybe, people who accept this argument, it never really gets more in-depth than a sort of an at-first blush or just obvious or intuitively believable state of affairs. It may never really advance beyond that without much by way of a careful defense of that claim. But in fact, if you do think about it carefully, don't get me wrong, some dualists do think about it carefully and they still disagree with me. That's okay. They're wrong. <laughs> in fact, a number of thoughtful Christian physicalists have denied this premise altogether. And they have said instead that there actually could, and in fact will, be gaps in your existence while you continue to be the same person. That is, you know, when you rise again, you will be the same person who died. That's what I mean when I say continue. The first comments that I want to suggest here are not really arguments about what is possible. They are temptations that I offer you to get you thinking that you might be more open to this possibility than you think. Or at least you would be, given the right sort of observation. Imagine that you are in the presence of a magician, not just some hack pretender who wants to make you think that he has magical powers, but a real bona fide sorcerer. This is an example suggested by philosopher Bruce Reichenbach. He puts a handkerchief into a box, that is the sorcerer, not, not Bruce Reichenbach. He puts a handkerchief into a box, taps the box, and then opens the box. The handkerchief is gone. You inspect the box thoroughly. It's definitely gone, and it was definitely there before. And it, he hasn't slipped it up his sleeve or anything like that. It's just gone. Okay. Now he taps the box again after, oh sorry, he closes the box, taps it again, and then pulls out the handkerchief, complete with your initials on it, which you wrote there earlier. Rubbish, you say, you don't believe in magic. Okay, now I have no idea why Jesus would do a thing like this, but imagine that this was one of the miracles performed by Jesus of Nazareth while he was here on earth 2,000 years ago. Now granted, it would be a pointless thing to do, but if you were there, knowing who this was and watching the event, what would you think? I'm betting that your intuitions about what's impossible 
are not so strong that you would smell a rat here. I think you'd believe it. Or consider another example. This time in the modern world, you're in a room with me, having a conversation, lucky you, and I just disappear. I'm just gone. Why I disappear, we never find out. But five minutes later, I appear in the same room. I appear startled by my reappearance. What just happened, I say? Now, what would you say? Would you say something like, what, what, Glenn, you, you just vanished and now you're back again? Or would you say, wait, who are you? Now, I'm guessing you would say the former. You'd say, wow, you just vanished and now you're back. You wouldn't doubt my identity, would you? <laughs> or imagine that you meet the world's most brilliant scientist who tells you that he has invented the world's first time machine. He shows it to you and then he and his assistant step inside and press the big red button. The time machine vanishes. Five years later, you return to that spot because the scientist told you that he was attempting to travel exactly five years into the future. Lo and behold, exactly five years later, in a puff of smoke, the machine appears again. The scientist and his assistant step out, and they have not aged so much as a day. They look exactly as they did before. What would everyone think? What would you think? Would you think, wow, that's amazing, it worked? Or would you think, wait, who are these two people? It can't be the scientist because he disappeared five years ago. I think you would clearly think the former. You would think this was incredible. If the machine appeared, you stepped inside and found two dead people inside, then you would say, this is the scientist and his assistant. They travelled through time, but they did not survive the process. Well, think of the transporter beam on the Starship Enterprise on Star Trek. Use your imagination here. I'm sure you could come up with other possible examples as well. At very least, I think that these scenarios are imaginable. And were we to actually witness them or anything like them, we could be persuaded to think that the thing or person now before our eyes is the same thing that we saw in the past, even though there were gaps in its existence or his or her existence. Our observations of these things happening would lead us to think or just assume that whatever the criteria of identity over time might be, assuming there are some, they are surely met in these cases somehow. We might scratch our heads a bit over how this worked, because let's face it, these are pretty incredible things to see, but the scenarios are not so wacky or, or crazy that we aren't even prepared to imagine them. What about giving an account of how it works in detail? Well, that's more difficult as you'd expect. One well-known example is, I think, a bit of a failure, and most philosophers agree with me, so that's good gives me confidence. It's a view that was held by John Locke. The idea is that a person at the resurrection can be the same person who died, or is the same person who died, just if that person at the resurrection has the same psychological constituents as the person who died. If the person in the resurrection remembers you and your life, has the same beliefs, values, preferences, and so on, has the same relationship stances toward people, etc., that you do, then that's you. That person at the resurrection is you. Jonathan Edwards countered this one pretty well, as have thinkers since then, by pointing out that if, if that's all that's required, then God could create multiple people at the resurrection who have all these features, couldn't he? So all of them could be you. But would any of them actually 
be you risen again, since all of them have equal claim to being you, given this criteria, and given that you can't be all of them, then the criteria must be wrong, surely. In fact, if this were the criteria, then, wow, gosh, I mean, God could create a dozen other people right now who are you, because they have your memories, your beliefs, and so forth. But that's surely absurd. I mean, you might say, well, God wouldn't do that. Well, he probably wouldn't. In fact, I think you can bet on him not doing so. It's not the point. The point is, conceptually, there's a problem here because it means that there's nothing logically wrong with there being more than one person who is actually you. But that's crazy. Surely there can only be one person who is you. Trenton Merricks has an interesting approach to this problem. He looks at the reassembly view. He looks at the the identical psychology view, the two views that I've looked at today. He rejects those as offering sufficient criteria of personal identity. What he then suggests is that maybe there really aren't any criteria after all. In the notes on this episode at the blog, I've provided some bibliographical references for further reading on that because it's, it's a little more complex than I could easily go into here. Basically, criterialism is the view that there is a criteria or there are criteria of identity over time. Now, while uh, Dr. Merricks doesn't accept criterialism, he does obviously accept that there are facts about identity over time. He believes that the person who rises at the resurrection, in fact, is a person who lived and died previously. So there's a fact about the matter. But identity itself, he says, is a basic fact. It's unanalyzable is what he calls it. You can't go any deeper than that. That's the most basic element of the description. For a further explanation and defense of his view of identity, you'll need to read his article on the subject called There Are No Criteria of Identity Over Time. Gee, what's what's it about, I wonder? (laughs) It's hardly an ad hoc or fringe idea. It's a serious philosophical thesis that requires consideration. The metaphysics of identity is certainly not my area of expertise, I admit that quite frankly. But I found what he had to say to be fairly believable. Challengeable, of course. Most philosophical theses are challengeable, but certainly one that needs to be taken seriously and gives strong plausibility to the claim that there are in fact no criteria of identity over time. Of course, he agrees, as we all do, I think, that there can be evidence of personal identity over time. Things like memories, physical appearance, being made of the same particles, etc. These could all serve as evidence of identity. They are used that way all the time, for example, by the police to solve crimes. You know, forensics are experts in using evidence for the identity of the killer, for example. Of course, these facts could be misleading. We could draw the wrong conclusion by using them. They aren't definitive criteria by any means, but they're useful pieces of evidence. And when the resurrection happens, they will be relevant in this respect. So, you know, come the resurrection day, if we're walking around among all the resurrected people looking for so-and-so, then we should look for someone who, you know, resembles so-and-so, who remembers being so-and-so and so forth. So that it's useful as evidence that these people are the same people who once lived and died in the past, however, will be a brute fact if Professor Merricks is correct. So actually, the arguments against physicalism and the resurrection as a combination of beliefs, or the one argument rather, isn't as compelling as you might think. They certainly, or this argument certainly, doesn't amount to a fatal flaw, as John Cooper said. With all due respect, I think that for a dualist, 
to say this is to give in to a very human temptation, which is roughly as follows. It's the temptation to be lazy and to be uncreative in our thinking when we are criticizing perspectives that we don't hold. We want there to be a serious problem with views that we reject, so we don't try very hard to imagine how the alleged problems might be resolved. We don't give our opponents their best shot, in other words. But in this case, Christians who are physicalists have offered responses. Some have explained that physicalism does not logically require gappy existence in the first place. All by itself, that diffuses the objection. And this reply is definitely correct. Some have argued that gappy existence isn't necessarily a problem for identity. And if they are right, then this is a second way of absolutely diffusing the objection. So things aren't as bad as some dualists imagine. Things aren't simple or easy either, of course, and I think that all of us will share Dr. Merrick's sentiment when he says, and I quote, although resurrection may not be impossible, it will certainly take a miracle. So some closing thoughts on this argument about physicalism and resurrection. You might not be persuaded, You might not think that these physical accounts are any good or that they are true. Perhaps you don't even think that they're likely. Maybe you find them so strange that you can't imagine how they could ever be taken seriously. Okay, I'm in no position to change your mind on that. I don't really think that's possible. But I do want you to take seriously William Hasker's advice. In fact, I want him to take it seriously as well. There is no reason to think that reality is limited by what we can easily imagine. It's also important to stress this, very important in fact, in fact I don't think that this is often, or at least often enough, brought into the conversation. I think it gets left left out you know, in the heat of battle. For Christians who are physicalists, just like Christians who are phys- uh, dualists, I hope, our hope for eternal life is not bound up with our ability to give a full account of how we will live after death or how the resurrection will work. Maybe we can't give an account like that. Maybe we are unsophisticated people who simply aren't able to delve into those kinds of arguments. Or maybe we are sophisticated, but our arguments just aren't right. Maybe the accounts of uh, are just wrong, and the correct account is one that hasn't yet been offered. Our hope for eternal life is based on the confidence that we can have in the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. We have trust, not in a theory, but in a person who has been there and who presents himself to us as the resurrection and the life. Now this gives us a firm platform from which we can, as fellow Christians, who do not agree on the nature of the mind, but who do agree that we have hope in Christ, a firm platform from which to explore the various possibilities that might exist for us to consider. So that's the end of part four of our series, In Search of the Soul. We've looked at, this is a recap of course, we've looked at the Cartesian or Platonic view that a lot of Christians traditionally have believed. We've gone on to look at more physically grounded theories like emergent dualism. We've looked at some of the arguments for dualism. We've responded to them. We've gone through and looked at physicalism and some responses to that. And the most recent argument, which is a response to physicalism, the argument that I covered today, the argument from the afterlife. So we're covering a lot of ground here which is good. It's good. We're getting a a well-rounded, hopefully a well-rounded look at the issue of philosophy of mind from a Christian point of view. In the next episode, I'm going to be looking at some of the biblical material for a more theological perspective 
on the subject, and then that'll be the end of the series. Before I ride off into the sunset today, let's hurtle through this week in history, and we're looking at the week 17th through 23rd of January. January 17th, the year 356, this is the traditional date anyway, Antony of Egypt, regarded as the founder of Christian monasticism, the very first founder of monks and later nuns, and anything similar, I suppose, dies at age 105. He was committed to a life of solitude and absolute poverty. He took two companions with him into the desert when he knew that his death was near. Now get this, they were ordered to bury him without any marker so that his body would never become the object of, or an object of reverence. Ironically, today you can go to the Abbey of Saint Antoine in France to see, you guessed it, the relics of Saint Antony. You know, the ironies of history. January 17th also, but this time in the year 1525, the Zurich City Council arranges a public debate on the subject of infant baptism, which Ulrich Zwingli, I don't know if that's how you probably say it, endorsed, but Conrad Grebel and Felix Manz, among others, opposed on the grounds that baptism symbolizes a believer's commitment to Christ. Now, opinions will inevitably differ over who had the better arguments, but no matter, because Manz was eventually killed for his baptismal practices, drowned in the Limat River. A fitting end, his reformed opponents supposed, to a Baptist. According to the council that sentenced him, quote, he who dips shall be dipped. In opposition to this act, Zwingli responded by saying and doing absolutely nothing. January 19th, the year 570, the prophet Muhammad was born. January 21st, 1521, Martin Luther was officially excommunicated from the Catholic Church. January 21, 1621, pilgrims leave the Mayflower and gather on the shore at Plymouth in Massachusetts for their first religious service in America. January 22nd, 1973, the United States Supreme Court legalizes abortion in its Roe versus Wade decision. So there you go. A quick recap of some of the important events that took place this week in history. That'll do for now. Do come back next time when we look at what the biblical material that relates to the mind-body problem has to say. Remember, episodes are approximately monthly. I might get to it sooner. It depends how things go at my end. So I will see you then. Bring a friend. And until then, it's all the best from me, your host, Glenn Peoples, signing off from another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!